0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the messaging wars over abortion, as well as the politics of supporting full abortion rights and the likely restrictions coming at the hands of the Supreme Court. Clips today are from Ordinary Equality, Democracy Now!, What's Next?, Counterspin, and Boom Lawyered.
1: Too many people in our movement still use language that suggests abortion is shameful. That having sex for pleasure and getting pregnant is a mistake. This language may sometimes seem subtle, but it reveals a deeply problematic seed in our movement. Here's Renee Bracey Sherman, the founder and executive director of We Testify, an organization dedicated to the leadership and representation of people who have abortions.
2: The way in which we talk about pregnancy in general, the anti-abortion movement very much is like, well, you know, you had sex, so you better have this kid and you're punished for it. You know, the reproductive rights movement is kind of like, well, you shouldn't be punished, you know, your whole life for a mistake. And it's, it needs to be beyond that. It needs to be that like, yeah, people have sex. People have multiple partners. People are sometimes in toxic relationships. Accidents happen. Birth control is not 100%. That's okay. And abortion can be there as part of that. And I think that the other piece about not wanting to talk about sexuality and pleasure is because we are, as a nation, uncomfortable with this idea that young people are having sex. A couple of years ago, Speaker Nancy Pelosi made comments saying we're not really supporting abortion on demand, which she was leaning into this right-wing talking point. But if we really break it down, what does on-demand mean? On-demand means somebody gets an abortion when they need one. I support that. On-demand is receiving the service, the care, the health care that you need. I believe all health care should be on-demand. When someone is saying they need it, they should get it. And so I, I think we don't need to buy into this right-wing talking point or this framing of what on-demand means and that it's like this frivolous thing and that people shouldn't be having them all the time, that it needs to be rare. No, there will be as many abortions as there need to be, and people should be able to have them whenever they need them. And I will support them to do that.
1: When politicians say they aren't for abortion on demand, what they're really doing is reacting defensively to attacks from the religious right. Republicans accuse the left of wanting indiscriminate abortions. Then, rather than breaking down what that means and sticking with an inclusive message, many on our side essentially respond with, no, we don't. Sometimes
2: even mentioning abortion can be seen as political suicide. And that is a signal to people who have abortions that the procedure that you had was shameful. And you probably should not talk about it. It is not a word that we should be saying in polite society, right? That is a actually a really large signal for us. And it feels very frustrating because all of us who've shared our abortion stories have put ourselves out there so much. And we put ourselves out there to really organize and ensure that we did not have an anti-abortion president going into 2021. And yet the least that this president could do is show up for us by talking about our need to have abortion care with some sort of like with values, right? Say from the podium how important it is that you believe access to abortion is part of human rights and it is health care unequivocally. This is not an uncommon thing. He's not the only one who does this. A lot of us are afraid of using the word abortion. People will use a lot of euphemisms women's reproductive health decisions and women's health care and all of these things. Just say the word abortion. It's gender inclusive. It says what you're talking about. And it's just one word. And it also signals that you unequivocally support it. And with that, I think what's important with another change is that we actually really need to start challenging our supposedly pro-choice legislators. You say that you're pro-choice, but won't talk about abortion, won't even say the word right? Show it. If you actually believe that your constituents deserve abortion access, show us by standing up and loving us in public. Show us that you love someone who's had an abortion. It's just that simple. And I also think we need to say that it's not just a thing to say the way in which we say, oh, I'm, I'm not racist. Prove it. Oh, I'm pro-choice. Prove it. I want to see you put your name on repealing the Hyde Amendment. I want to see your local city council work to make sure there is money to ensure people in your city can afford abortions. Just think about
3: the language many people on the left use to talk about abortion. Phrases like safe, legal, and rare, or don't punish someone for one mistake. That sends a signal to folks who have had abortions. It says, you should feel bad. Abortion is still seen by too many people in our movement, even those on our side, as politically and socially toxic. Whether or not we realize it, the language we use and our reluctance to bring it up reinforce that it's true and let the other side weaponize it.
4: we turn now to another right Democrats face mounting pressure to preserve—women's right to control their own bodies and choose to have an abortion. Advocates note President Biden has not publicly said the word abortion once since he became president. Until 2019, he supported the Hyde Amendment, which bans federal funding for abortions and forces Medicaid patients in most states to pay for their abortions or stay pregnant because they can't afford the procedure. Well, on Monday, for the first time in four decades, a key House subcommittee cleared a spending bill for the Department of Health and Human Services without including the Hyde Amendment. This is Appropriations Committee Chairwoman Rosa DeLauro.
5: I know that this is an issue on which many of us disagree. But regardless of the original intent of Hyde, it has disproportionately impacted women of color and it has ultimately led to more unintended pregnancies and later, riskier and more costly abortions. Quite frankly, allowing the Hyde Amendment to remain on the books is a disservice not only to our constituents, but also to the values that we espouse as a nation. We are finally doing what is right for our mothers, our families, our communities, by this discriminatory amendment once and for all.
4: This comes as the now ultra conservative Supreme Court is set to review a Mississippi law intended to challenge Roe v. Wade that would ban abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. If Roe v. Wade does not survive, can reproductive rights be preserved without it? For more, we're joined by the co authors of a new book that addresses this question just out today. It's titled Controlling Women what we must do now to save reproductive freedom. In Philadelphia, Catherine Colbert joins us, longtime public interest attorney, who argued the landmark case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey before the Supreme Court in 1992, which is credited with saving Roe v. Wade. And in New York, Julie Kay is a human rights attorney who's argued for abortion rights internationally, including before the European Court of Human Rights um, uh, in A, B and C. versus Ireland, which prompted the liberalization of Ireland's abortion law. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Kitty Colbert, let's begin with you. Um, We have a Democratic president. Democrats control the Senate and the House. Yet President Biden has not said the word abortion since becoming president. Um, Can you talk about the significance of this and what you think has to happen right now if you believe Roe v. Wade um, uh, were—if you— if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, and if it
5: isn't. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be here. And uh, let me just say, I think it's more important for the president to do the right thing, not to talk about it. So I'm not disturbed by the fact that he hasn't mentioned the question of abortion. But uh, and I do think that the fact that the Hyde Amendment uh, efforts to repeal the Hyde Amendment are going through Congress are a very good thing. But let's remember that that bill has a long, long way to go. Uh, it has to get through the House and the Senate, and there are not currently uh, sufficient votes to uh, support uh, a, a hide-free bill. So we, d- we have a long way to go. L- let's go back, though, to the, the more important question is, what's the Supreme Court going to do uh, around this issue? And I think it's very, very likely that the court will either eradicate the right to choose abortion as we now know it completely or so undermine it to make it meaningless for most of American women. And that means that we as a nation need to stand up and make changes, both at the state level uh, and in Congress, to ensure that our rights are protected. And unless we do so, unless we change tactics, unless we go forward and uh, with a new vision of what's possible, uh, we're going to be in for a very, very, very uh, difficult uh, period of time.
4: Can you explain the Hyde Amendment?
5: Sure. So the Hyde Amendment is an appropriation to is a rider to an appropriations bill. It prevents uh, poor women, uh, those who collect uh, Medicaid funding from obtaining an abortion. And there are Hyde-like restrictions on a whole range of federal laws that prohibit, for example, women in the military and women in the Peace Corps and a a range anyone who receives essentially uh, federal funding for their health care from obtaining abortions. And what this means is, is that the uh, ability to have a baby is paid for. The ability to do every other type of health care is paid for except abortion. And what that means for poor women is they don't have the means to obtain the service. Uh, it is extremely discriminatory against poor women, young women, uh, women of color. And it means that uh, their ability to exercise the choice they want is uh, prohibited.
4: This is Justice Ruth Bader-Ginsburg speaking during her 1993 Supreme Court confirmation hearing. My thinking about equal protection versus individual autonomy and, and my answer to you is it's it's both. This is something central to a woman's
5: life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make. Herself. And when
4: government controls that decision for her, she is being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for her own choices. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was unapologetically uh, pro choice. She was confirmed 96 to 3. Um, that was 1993. Kitty Colbert, in 1992, you made your second appearance before the U.S. Supreme Court, arguing Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the landmark case widely credited with saving uh, Roe v. Wade, with what has um, been called one of the most audacious litigation strategies in Supreme Court history. Can you lay that out, what it
5: is, how you argue this? Well, uh, let's say, uh, Amy, that the, what happened in 1992 is being replicated now. Uh, we had at the time believed that Roe was going to be overturned. And in fact, there were five votes at the time to uh, repeal Roe to totally eliminate it. Uh, It was only the last-minute change by Justice Kennedy uh, that led to uh, what we now know as Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And what that case did is it uh, established that you had a right to have an abortion up until the time of viability. But states had a lot more power to restrict those rights. And over the years, they've chipped away and chipped away and chipped away what we now think of as the right to choose abortion. And and, and what that's meant is many, many women, particularly poor poor women and young women, have been unable to obtain services in states all across the country. Uh, As the court has gotten more conservative, we're likely to see not only uh, a replication of that, But at this point, I think it's absolutely clear there are six clear votes on this court to eliminate Roe, send the question back to the states, and then we are back to a a state-by-state question state legislatures will have tremendous power to ban abortion, and we estimate that about a third of the states in this country will ban abortion should the court give them the right to do that.
4: This is how you began your opening argument in the U.S. Supreme Court.
5: Whether our Constitution endows government with the power to force a woman to continue or to end a pregnancy against her will is the central question in this case. Since this Court's decision in Roe v. Wade, a generation of American women have come of age secure in the knowledge that the Constitution provides the highest level of protection for their childbearing decisions. This landmark decision, which necessarily and logically flows from a century of this Court's jurisprudence, not only protects rights of bodily integrity and autonomy, but has enabled millions of women to participate fully and equally in society. The genius of Roe and the Constitution is that it fully protects rights of fundamental importance. Government may not chip away at fundamental rights nor make them selectively available only to the most privileged women. That's Kitty
4: Colbert arguing before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, In your book, Controlling Women, Kitty, you
5: say you did not expect to win. I did not. Our entire strategy was built on the view that there were five votes to overrule Roe, that the question would become a political one. We wanted to force that issue before the 1992 election so that uh, Bill Clinton uh, could be the president and we could pass federal legislation to protect the right. Uh, So we were very, very surprised. Uh, But I think the the lesson now, it's 20 some years later, is that the court uh, has incredible power to eliminate the constitutional rights we hold dear, and they are poised now to do so again. And if that happens, we as a movement need to be prepared to win back those rights in, the, in state courts, in the uh, state legislatures, and in Congress. We can't sit idly by as we see these uh, rights being taken away. And uh, that's really the key here, is what do we need to do now to make sure that our rights are safeguarded going forward?
3: Our message needs to be precise and intentional just as the rights movement was when they created this debate in the first place. Progressives and reproductive rights advocates tend to get passionate in the heat of the debate and lose sight of that fact. For example, one common approach is to point out when anti-choice people are being hypocritical. How many times have you heard a progressive on Twitter say something like, You're pro-life, but you're also pro-death penalty. Such a contradiction. It's infuriating when the right spouts contradictory views. I get that so it can be tempting to call it out when you see it. But Anat says that tactic isn't actually effective when you're trying to convert the movable middle.
6: The hypocrisy argument doesn't work because our activists will repeat it, our activists get excited about it, but our base isn't particularly excited about it because it's a process argument and not an outcome argument. And in general, process arguments are duds. We need to be arguing about what the outcomes that our policies will deliver. So that's one thing. The second thing is that in making the hypocrisy argument, you by definition have to cede the moral high ground. Because instead of talking about what you stand for, what you believe in, what you want to see happen in the world, now you want to say, he said this yesterday, and now he said this today, and he said this, and then he said that, when in fact, that's taking you off of your message. I mean, that's sort of the fundamental thing is that we need to say what we're for. And instead of saying what we're for, we get sucked in. We're like cats with a laser pointer. And we were that anyway. But during Trump, it was like laser pointer plus speed. It was like, wait, he said this. Wait, he said that. Wait, he said this. Wait, he said, you know, and we're just constantly chasing after them and therefore amplifying what they say in our earnest desire to talk about how completely and totally egregious and
1: horrendous it is. In the end, you can't shame the shameless. So the real goal of our message should be talking about what we're for, not constantly reacting to egregious things people on the right are saying. Again, it's about being proactive and independent, not just defensive and reactive. They aren't trying to wage a war based on facts.
3: We've talked a lot about what not to do when putting your message into the world and talking with anti-abortion people. But what should we do? not mentioned that we should build on common beliefs to create empathy. But what does that look like in practice?
6: Most of us know all too well the pain of seeing a loved one struggle with a pregnancy they longed for that slipped away. Someone you were counting down the days to meet only to learn they would never survive. A pregnancy you were too broke, too sick, too scared, or simply not ready to continue. A pregnancy that would endanger all you are struggling to provide for the children you already have. Someone you love might need an abortion someday. You can help ensure that when that day comes, they can get the care they need. Basically, to make people remember and understand that pregnancy is something that happens to lots of people, not all people, (laughs) but lots of people, and pregnancy can all sorts of different ways and it can go all sorts of different routes and all sorts of different things can happen in a pregnancy. And that includes, for example, as you already know, the massive silence and therefore stigma around miscarriage, which is incredibly common, the various kinds of developmental delays and disabilities that can be discovered in utero, you know, like all sorts of things happen in life and all sorts of things happen in pregnancy. And I think that until we normalize this bigger story of pregnancy as a thing that happens in many people's lives, it can take all different forms, it can take all different paths, it can come from all different sources, it can raise all sorts of different emotions, and the person who is pregnant is in the role of deciding what's going to happen. So that's one approach. The other approach is to embrace something that we've been we've used with great success on other issues, which is something we call the race-class narrative. And that approach would sound like this. For example, no matter what we look like or where we live, most of us believe that we should decide for ourselves whether and when to have children. So there's that opening shared value. But today... A handful of politicians pass laws that destroy our freedoms, undermine our rights, and endanger our futures. They pass laws that force us to struggle to simply make ends meet or to care for our families and then shame and blame us for the hardships they create. And while we're busy fighting for our most basic rights, they hand the money they take from our health care, our schools, and our kids' futures to their corporate donors. Someone you love might need an abortion someday. A handful of politicians are trying to make us shame and blame women people struggling to make ends meet, new immigrants, black people, whoever it is they can point their finger at to distract from their attempts to destroy our freedoms and from their failures to make sure we can get and stay well. They turn abortion into an issue because they hope that we'll look the other way While they dismantle the childcare every single one of us needs, they destroy the public schools that our children rely upon, and they refuse us the basic knowledge and protections that would help us not get pregnant in the first place. We see through their lies, we see through their distractions, and we choose to treat every single person, no matter what they look like, where they come from, or what kind of plumbing they have, as an equal with the full right and ability to decide for themselves whether and when they
3: become parents. Not everyone is going to be persuadable, but we will have to confront people that disagree with us and attempt to convince them if we want to push our political argument forward.
6: So one of the first things that you have to do is you have to correctly identify the people you cannot have, and you have to not use them as a litmus test of whether or not your messaging is quote unquote working. They're your opposition for a reason. They should dislike what you are saying. Because again, the only way that they like what you're saying, and probably there is no way on abortion, is for you to basically not say what you actually think, in which case you don't actually win. You're not winning your thing. You're either doing like puppies are cute and people are like, yes, I agree. Puppies are cute. But you're not advancing a political argument. Like you're not doing anything. You're just spinning your wheels. Or you are inadvertently reinforcing the other side per the safe legal rare
1: example. If you're talking to someone you've identified as persuadable, someone who isn't self-interested, it's important to remember that they actually believe what they're saying, however wrong it may be. I'm not modeled what finding common ground could actually look like, so with folks that are not the committed opposition, they are religious, they
6: are not hypocrites, they have truly felt beliefs, they're not like a mastermind of manipulation and pretending that this is their issue so that they can actually like destroy cities and destroy schools and destroy people's lives they they genuinely think this I think. Again, it's a question of non judgmental listening and of saying if you're having a one on one, like in your heart of hearts, what do you hope would happen in the world when someone was struggling, when someone had sex for whatever reason they had sex because they were forced or coerced, because they absolutely were excited to and wanted to? Because they had been given misinformation about, you know, they, they bought the story that you can't get pregnant your first time or you can't get pregnant when you're breastfeeding. And they believed a thing that wasn't true. If it were up to you, what would you have happen? And I'm guessing they would say, uh, well, what I would want to have happen is I would want that person to carry the child to term. And then I would want them to give it up for adoption. That's my guess as to what they would say, you know, if they don't want it. And what I would say to that is, I hear you. You know, I would just love us to be in a place where every single child in this country had the care, the love, the food, the shelter, the toys, the imagination, the jokes, the backyard, you know, the, like, beautiful park, the the silly childhood song, the ice cream cone on their birthday— that I want for my own kids. That's the kind of America that I can really get behind and really work toward. And I think that you feel the same. That's what I've heard from you. That's what I've experienced. And, you know, I think that that's what God wants. I think what God wants for us all is to be able to live a happy whole life. And I think that the way that we get there is ensuring that we equip everyone with the tools to make their very best choices about whether and when to become a parent and to understand how to do that. I think it's coming from that place of like, starting off with how would we like children to be treated in our country? How would we like childhood to be experienced?
0: want to talk for a minute about how competition in the attention economy is as fierce as ever and only going up because for a long time now i have liked to think of podcasts as somehow being outside of the attention economy you know just because we're not by and large fed to you through manipulative algorithms like youtube or facebook or twitter and all of that but it is clear that that is not a clear-eyed view of the situation Everyone, as we know, has a finite amount of attention, and everything in the world is competing for it, including podcasts. So that means we're part of the economy just like everyone else. Now, starting at the beginning of the Trump years, give or take, we began to see our download numbers start to fall. And I chalked it up mostly to outrage fatigue. You know, People would write in and say, I can't listen to the show anymore. I can't handle the news right now. Fair enough, I thought. Um, but now it is clear that that's not the only cause of the drop and pure competition can't be ignored. So just like YouTubers who remind you endlessly to subscribe and hit the notification bell, I essentially have to play the same game or inevitably be left behind. So to that end, in recent years, many podcast apps have introduced a similar function to turn on push notifications for new podcast episodes. And in an effort to get our download numbers turned back in a positive direction, I am asking that you, if you are willing, turn on the notifications ...for when new episodes of Best of Left are published. And if you bristle at the idea, I'm with you. I dislike interruptions as much as the next person. So I only recommend silent notifications, as they're called on Android... ...or notifications that are delivered quietly, as Apple describes it. So you'll be notified whenever we publish a new episode... ...but only when you decide to look at your phone... ...not some other time when you're being distracted by it. Because the fact is, it's not just memberships that keep the show going... Listening to every episode and helping keep our download numbers up is also what helps us bring in advertisers too, and that is a critical part of it. So maybe just give it a trial run, see how it goes. If they don't bother you and it reminds you to listen to the show more often, win-win. If you hate it, turn it off later. No hard feelings. Now, as always, thanks for your support in whatever way you're able to give it.
7: If you want to zoom in on one state that's laser-focused on restricting abortion and think about how those restrictions could play out over the next few months and years, Mark says Arkansas is a pretty good place to start. Arkansas already put in place a trigger law a couple years back that would automatically ban abortion if Roe v. Wade got overturned. But this year, Arkansas instituted an abortion ban all of its own in violation of existing legal precedent.
8: That ban is so extreme and and beginning at fertilization, an embryo is protected by the law. Even if the embryo was created through an act of rape, right? The, The law says there's nothing that the woman can do. She has to carry that pregnancy to term.
7: And what's interesting about that is that a huge percentage of fertilized eggs do not go on to become babies or embryos or anything else women get their period or they miscarry and some of them never knew they were pregnant in the first place.
8: Yes. And this is something that we'll see after Roe is reversed, that we already see in countries where abortion is banned, which is criminal investigations of miscarriages. Not uncommon in countries with really extreme restrictive abortion bans, like Central America, for instance, uh, where prosecutors get involved when a woman, say, goes to the hospital with uh, a miscarriage and investigate whether that miscarriage was induced. And if so, then this is a criminal case. It's no longer a personal medical issue. It's a matter of a legal natural human under the law dying under potentially suspicious circumstances.
7: Have we already begun to see prosecutors wrestling with that ambiguity here in the United
8: States? Absolutely. And this is something that anti-abortion advocates don't like to talk about. But we have already seen a number of prosecutors try to work around Roe v. Wade to prosecute Women who terminate their own pregnancies. So in states like Georgia and Idaho, we have seen women who have minimal access to abortion clinics, order drugs online, induce their own abortions, and prosecutors will file criminal charges against them. They will go to the hospital and handcuff them. They will throw them in jail and tr- again, try to work around Roe to say, you murdered this child or you practiced medicine illegally or you disposed of a corpse unlawfully using these kind of arcane laws or just going straight for murder to try to put the woman on the hook. And we see anti-abortion advocates say, we don't want to punish women who terminate. We want to punish the abortionists. But in reality, today, women themselves are often the abortionists. That's something that anti-abortion advocates just haven't really wrestled with. And I think it shows what a fantasy or a delusion it is for them to claim that women won't ever be punished for, for terminating their pregnancies.
7: Back when Arkansas passed that trigger law in 2019, legislators openly worried about the implications of the bill they were debating. Arkansas State Representative Dan Douglas, a Republican, self-described as pro-life, spoke out against this legislation before it headed to the governor's desk.
8: I am pro-life, but
7: I am pro-humanity, too. I feel like this bill goes too far. And who are we to set in judgment of these women making a decision between them and their physician and their God above? It is their right to do that and not ours. With this year's ban, legislators debated the same kinds of issues. One senator brought up her 10-year-old niece and lamented that she might be required to carry a pregnancy to term if she was the victim of rape or incest. But when a few Republicans tried to insert language into the bill that would grant exceptions in these kinds of cases, their colleagues brushed them off, said they were making the kinds of arguments Planned Parenthood might make. Mark Joseph Stern says that's because right now, conservative legislators are feeling confident.
8: Abortion restrictions have always been about the art of the possible, and for a long time, The goal was to get the Supreme Court to push Roe to its limits by, say, upholding mandatory ultrasounds or really long waiting periods or mandatory counseling where a doctor has to spew this anti-abortion propaganda, chipping around the edges of Roe. And at that point, some Republicans, not all, but some, wouldn't necessarily want to go out and say the end goal here is to just ban all abortions because that gives the game away. Think about the trap laws um, that target clinics that impose these really onerous restrictions on abortion clinics to try to shutter them.
7: These are like restrictions that talk about your door has to be certain number of feet wide and you have to be associated with a nearby hospital in order to do abortions.
8: Your doctor has to have admitting privileges at a hospital that's within 10 feet or 15 miles. Your vents have to be so many inches wide. All of this stuff that all medical experts agree is not actually necessary to protect women's health. To defend those laws in court, Republicans had to pretend like they were about women's health, like they were not actually about banning abortion, because Roe still seemed at that point like it was here to stay. And after Brett Kavanaugh joined the court... uh After lower courts started to suggest that they were ready to start defying Roe, and especially after Amy Coney Barrett replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think Republican legislators saw less of a reason to pretend like this was about protecting women's health or even about incrementally rolling back abortion. This has become, as I said, a sprint to overturn Roe, to take the glory of being the state that ends Roe, and there's no need to pretend like it's about anything else. And Republicans who have some concerns about extreme abortion bans don't have much room in the party, at least on the state level, in most of the country.
7: Mark, you keep talking about when Roe versus Wade is overturned, but shouldn't we be saying if? I
8: think it's very clear that Roe will be overturned or perhaps so eviscerated that it basically doesn't exist anymore. And I think that for... People like me who are pro-choice, it's better to start grappling with that reality, both on the kind of abstract level and in terms of how we talk about abortion. And to me, I think it's probably more realistic to just say, Roe is going to go and we'll learn exactly how over the next year. Once you've granted this kind of personhood to a fertilized egg, then you have criminalized a broad swath of fertility treatments, including IVF, because that process involves creating embryos and eventually destroying some of the embryos. This is something the anti-abortion movement has been focused on for some time. In fact, there are devout Christian couples who will adopt an embryo. They will adopt a fertilized egg. I believe they call them snowflake babies. Yes, precisely. Snowflake babies who are carried to term by another woman, and they think that this is protecting the sanctity of human life. And it was only a matter of time until that bled into legislation. And so what we're seeing in Arkansas is not just affecting individual women's uh, health decisions, but affecting couples, both same-sex and opposite-sex couples who struggle with infertility. This law very clearly says, says you are not welcome in Arkansas if you want to use IVF and I think that's the next stage in this battle because this was never going to end with abortion it's also about all this other stuff including contraception birth control and IVF and I think once Roe falls that's sort of the next front
9: spoke with URGE executive director Kimberly Nes-McGuire in February. She explained how abortion being legal and abortion being accessible are very much not the same thing. Acknowledging that the right that Roe v. Wade codified of a pregnant person to decide whether to continue that pregnancy pre-viability, that, that's not been a realizable right for many women for some time and for some really ever That's not to say that Roe didn't matter, and it certainly wasn't to say that losing Roe would not matter. What weight are you giving or or how are you responding to this latest turn in the legal landscape?
10: Kimberly is absolutely right. Roe is not enough, has never been enough, and we still need it. And what I think is really important to recognize here is that legal abortion, of course, is on the line. But keeping abortion legal is only the first step. And so what Kimberly was really speaking about is a thing that many of us are starting to speak about and that many others have been speaking about for quite a while, is that legality alone is not and has never been enough because the legal right to abortion access really means nothing if the same people who have the right can't access their right. There is a difference between having a choice and having the ability to effectuate that choice. And so what we think about is our vision and the vision being bigger, committed to creating communities and centering communities where our loved ones are able to receive the abortion care that they need. And unfortunately, even with Roe, many have been forced to give birth because, of course, Roe established the right, a very important right to abortion pre viability the one thing they did not establish was that people need access to abortion pre-viability.
9: Well, the Dobbs case that's coming forward that the court has said they'll listen to is, you know, it's not unique. Listeners will know that. The Guttmacher Institute says that 2021 may be the most damaging anti-abortion state legislative session in a decade and perhaps ever. There have been more than 500 abortion restrictions, including more than 100 outright bans across some 46 states. So I guess my question is... What's the difference between state and federal here? You know, we hear Biden saying, well, whatever the court does, even if the court overturns Roe, we're going to still push for Roe rights. But so much of this seems to be happening at the state level. So what what is the federal role here? What could be meaningfully done if the court makes this decision?
10: The first thing I'll say to that is, you know, the Biden-Harris administration need to actually say the word abortion to speak about abortion care and act. To date, we have minimally heard the Biden-Harris administration actually talk about abortion as abortion, right? It's centered on row. People don't go into the clinical setting to get a row. They go into the clinical setting to get an abortion. And so, you know, that's really important to name explicitly some of the issues related to why the Biden Harris Administration aren't talking about abortion care by name. So I want to first name that because it's incredibly important. The second thing I'll name is that there is something Congress can do. And what Congress can really start to do is passing legislation to protect the right to abortion care, such as the Women's Health Protection Act or WIPA. Urge has actively worked on the Women's Health Protection Act that will be introduced in the coming weeks in the 117th Congress with our friends at the Center for American Rights. What's really exciting about WIPA is that if passed, it will protect the right to abortion access throughout the United States and really safeguards the killing of those rights, like the one we see happening in Mississippi. So there is something that the federal government can do that Congress can do pretty immediately in the coming weeks, and that's co-sponsor and pass the Women's Health Protection Act.
9: Well, in terms of media coverage, I'm always incensed when I see media present abortion as a cultural issue, as as if it's a soft issue as opposed to a serious issue like economics. You know, if there's anything more central to economic life than the ability to decide whether and when to have a child, I can't imagine what it is. And yet, again and again, in media, we see even, you know, Reuters talking about uh, this, Supreme Court jumps into U.S. culture wars. I just, I feel that the way media talk about abortion, it lines up with the White House, where you don't say the word abortion, because that's icky, you know, so you don't present it as a central economic core integral right for human beings, to have. It's instead something that religious people care about or something.
10: Exactly. And what it does is is it continues to drive a wedge that shouldn't be a wedge. When we're talking about abortion, we're talking about life-saving treatment that people actually need. It's medical care. It's health care. And in many ways, all statistics show that abortion care is in many ways safer than giving birth. And so, you know, those are statistics and fact that many people, unfortunately, who are driving this quote-unquote culture war narrative don't want people to, to believe or understand, but it's true. And unfortunately, what it does, it undermines the necessary conversation we must have around reproductive health right, and justice, especially reproductive justice, right? So, of course, reproductive justice is more than abortion. It's it's comprehensive. But we're talking about the human right to maintain bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. Abortion access is a critical part of maintaining reproductive justice for Black folks, for Indigenous folks, for Asian, American, and Pacific Islander communities, for Indigenous folks. And we must center it on the work where people can create a future for themselves, where every person can make their own decisions with dignity, with autonomy, and with self-determination. And you're absolutely right. When media coverage and narrative is about culture war, it creates this idea that only some people should have abortion access, but the people who do want abortion access are the people who are against what is actually the moralistic framing of this country. And it creates a divide of good and bad. Abortion is not about good or bad. Abortion is about access and creating the families and the communities that we want, that we can see, and that can thrive in the system that we have today.
9: Well, just finally, I guess I would say I think so many elite reporters can cover abortion as an abstraction because, you know, if you're a reporter of the New York Times, nobody you know is going to have any trouble obtaining an abortion, no matter what the Supreme Court decides. Exactly. I just think that you don't have experience of what it means to have to ask your parents or have to get on a bus and travel two states over. I guess I would ask you, finally, whose voices could media be listening to that could reshape the understanding that they're putting forward about abortion rights and access?
10: That is such an important question, and I think that is the question that we should all be asking ourselves. This is not about uplifting particular politicians' voices more than anyone else's. This is about centering the people who abortion has been out of reach since Roe and will certainly be out of reach if Roe is suddenly pushed back and overturned by the Supreme Court. We should really be listening to abortion patients and those who have had abortions, those who may want abortions in the future. And that includes Black people. That includes women, of course, and other folks capable of becoming pregnant, like trans and non-binary people and queer people. That includes young people, especially. That includes places where abortion access has been chipped away time and again, like the South and the Midwest. It includes poor people and people who are struggling to make ends meet. And it really includes the communities that the media so often forget about and never talk to and certainly don't center in their conversations. Abortion care and abortion access is a racial justice and it's an economic justice issue. And until we have those honest conversations, we'll be in the court hoping that they save our lives time and again.
1: Heidi Moseson, an epidemiologist at IBIS Reproductive Health. She helped conduct a national quantitative survey about pregnancy in the trans and non-binary community.
11: I think what's felt really powerful about this study and having it published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is the top OBGYN journal in the country, is to just make very clear to all OBGYNs, Trans and non-binary people have abortions in this country. They are showing up in your clinics. They are showing up as your patients. Have an awareness of that there are some needs and experiences that may differ from your more frequent cisgender women patients. So some considerations around preference for method type, you know. We learned that a lot of our trans and non-binary participants had a strong preference for medication abortion based on it being less invasive, essentially, and not requiring any internal exam or internal instrumentation, etc., which we didn't have that information before. What we present in some of our research, too, is there's high desire for pregnancy amongst trans and non-binary folks. So someone can be a man and want to carry a pregnancy so I think there's a lot of assumptions based on who someone is in partnership with, who someone is having sex with, what assumptions or genders the providers might assume for any of that. You, you basically can't make assumptions. People want to build their families, and there are so many amazing ways that people can build their families.
3: We sat down with a non-binary reproductive justice advocate was kind enough to share how lack of visibility and inclusive language has impacted their experience in their pursuit of work and healthcare?
12: So my name's Jack. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. Whenever people ask me to tell them what my capacity is in this movement, I always just tell them what I do for a living because I find that to be very interesting. I run a sex shop, so that's fun. Um, And I feel like it's somewhat relevant. I've been Work, I worked in public health for a while in my early 20s. Um, and I've been talking about my
1: abortion publicly for about 10 years now. Jack said their abortion at Planned Parenthood was a largely positive experience. But the clinic still clearly didn't have the gender identity literacy they should have had. I was too scared to really
12: tell anybody at the clinic while I was having the abortion, hey, these are actually my pronouns. It really... I was like, I want to be safe and not be pregnant. I wasn't going to sit and have an education session on what pronouns were at that moment. Um, That would be too much emotional labor. And I was not in a good place. Like, I was not happy about the situation, obviously. So (laughs) it's not the first thing I wanted to have to explain. At the time, because I had my abortion in 2011... There was no pronoun option or preferred name option on the intake forms.
3: They were incredibly cis-sexist. But again, it wasn't my first concern. This lack of knowledge about gender identity and repeated misgendering became a common theme running through much of Jack's advocacy work.
12: I remember once I did a presentation. I was b- being given feedback and someone misgendered me. And I corrected them and they told me, Jack could you not correct me when I misgender you because it takes me out of my thought process and the amount of patience I had to practice in that moment was just incalculable um and I had to say well I had to wait and kind of just go well you know I appreciate that that you're communicating that with me but I want you to think about how difficult it is for me to hear what you're saying when you're misgendering me and how that takes me out of being able to to hear you and communicate with you
3: because it is an act of violence Even if advocates use the right gender pronouns, acknowledgement of trans people's existence is too often performative. When
12: I've worked with other organizations,
3: a lot of the time it
12: feels like they just want a trauma story. They want me to talk about how sad and hard it was to be a poor college student who couldn't afford their abortion. Being gender non-conforming, being transgender, being non-binary, that That's like a fun tidbit here and there in May for, you know, pride bump that they love to throw in. But it's not. They use people like me for our stories for credibility, but they don't actually give a rat's ass what happens to us. They often don't pay you for the emotional labor or physical labor, depending on what you're doing. They are unorganized. They don't have any respect for you. You're just another name and another story to go like, oh, yes, because we need these donors. So we need you to talk about how sad and hard it was for you. And it doesn't feel like I'm being treated like a human
1: being. This ignorance translates to a material lack of respect and opportunity in healthcare. Here's Dr. Moseson again.
11: Some providers who may want to provide affirming care but haven't had training or exposure to information on how to do so or on an uglier side, a lot of outright discrimination and refusal to provide care for someone who shows up as a man or a non-binary person in an abortion clinic. And on a seemingly less harmful scale, but perhaps no less, perhaps actually no less harmful, small things such as it's really hard to walk into a space as a man that says, women's health clinic, you walk into a space, the walls are pink. There's only pictures of cis women on the walls. It. It feels hard to show up in that space and be misgendered by the receptionist or only have a women's restroom in the space. Um, things that sound small but can be quite intimidating to walk into. We have another study actually out on people, trans and non-binary folks who opted not to go to the healthcare system often for these reasons and chose to self-manage an abortion at home, either with herbs or in some settings with harmful methods, such as physical trauma, there's a lot to be said for self-managed abortion. It can be very safe and effective if people use mifepristone and or mesoprostol on its own. But when people don't have access to that, those medications, it can be less safe.
1: We can't undermine the humanity of trans people for fear of opening ourselves up to further criticism from transphobes, TERFs, and the religious right. We must acknowledge the full base of people we're intending to help and defend. It hurts me when I see purported reproductive rights activists pushing back against gender-neutral terms like pregnant people, with concerns that they erase womanhood. My own identity isn't impacted by gender-neutral language. In my assessment, you can't be a real reproductive justice advocate without being trans-inclusive, just like you can't be a feminist and be racist. Jack had a response to people who refused to use gender-neutral language regarding pregnancy.
12: That's because they associate womanhood with that experience. There are women, cis and trans, who don't have uteruses, who can't give birth, who can give birth. And I find that to be very close-minded. I completely understand why, especially older generations of Black women. I'm Caribbean, and I get that narrative is we weren't given the opportunity to be people. We weren't considered w- women at all. We were property and all that jazz. I completely understand that. But I also would love to acknowledge the fact that people of different gendered experiences and fluidity have existed for thousands of years. This is not new. Whether we were recognized, you know, it's like that that conversation about, we weren't allowed to be people. Like it's—it's it's, it's a lack of acknowledgement of our existence and how ironic that is, because that's the argument that's being made. It's, like, it's not acknowledging our existence. What about ours? We're experiencing the same things. We are also people of color. We are also disabled people. We are also women. We are also not women. The queerness is there, whether it's a, a queerness of gender or queerness of orientation, sexual orientation or romantic orientation, it's there and it needs to be acknowledged.
7: At the same time these state laws have been getting jammed through all around the country, the Supreme Court itself weighed in and sent a signal about the way its rulings on abortion may be about to change. The court did this most directly by announcing plans to take up a case that challenges Roe v. Wade directly, a case that started in Mississippi. That state tried to ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy a few years back. It's a law that Mark says was crafted specifically to end up in the Supreme Court's lap.
8: Let's be clear, Mississippi passed this uh, law explicitly to serve as a vehicle for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe. So the law has never taken effect. The legislature passed it in 2018. Uh, A federal district court blocked it. And then the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld that decision,
7: but... It's funny, a 15-week ban, given what we've just talked about, a a ban at fertilization in Arkansas and a six-week ban in Texas, 15 weeks seems almost
8: quaint. Yes, it does. And I think maybe that's part of the conservative justice's thinking here, that after seeing what could happen, that pro-choice advocates will settle for 15-week ban because they're afraid of a law like Arkansas's getting green-lighted instead but to give the background. So Mississippi passes the law. The lower courts block it. But this Trump judge named Jim Ho on the Fifth Circuit writes this kind of long separate opinion where he says, look, I have to block this under Roe, but I really hope that the Supreme Court uses this case as a vehicle to overturn Roe because I think Roe is wrong. And in in saying that, this judge was speaking for almost all Trump judges who are very hostile to reproductive rights. Wow! And, and so... Mississippi offered the Supreme Court a bunch of different options if it wanted to take up this case. So Mississippi said, look, you could take this case and just use it to decide whether Roe v. Wade should stand. But you could also take this case and use it to tweak the standard that courts use when assessing abortion restrictions. To say that fetal life is a compelling state interest that can you know, outweigh women's interests. Or you could use it to restrict abortion clinics' ability to bring lawsuits on behalf of patients. There was like a buffet of options here. And- Is there any indication of which option the court's going to take? Oh, yes, because the court told us. The Supreme Court, it was like a a seven-year-old at a Chinese buffet going straight for the last egg roll. The Supreme Court said, we don't want these compromises. We don't want these half measures. We're just going to take the one big question, which is in short- whether we should overturn Roe v. Wade and allow states to ban abortions before fetal viability. So the question that the court took up essentially asks... um does the Constitution prohibit states from outlawing abortion before viability? And again, Roe answered that question. Yes, the Constitution does prohibit states from banning abortion before viability. And that, for nearly 50 years, has been the bright-line rule. And no matter what other restrictions the Supreme Court has upheld, it has preserved and reinforced that bright-line rule. And this case is a very obvious vehicle for the Supreme Court to overturn that rule and to say, actually, we think that Mississippi and other states do have a constitutional right, constitutional authority to ban abortions before viability at 15 weeks. And it seems likely to me that the Supreme Court will just uphold this law and not say exactly how far their reasoning goes. So they'll probably say something like, yes, Mississippi has the authority to ban abortion at 15 weeks. Roe is overturned to the extent that it prohibits Mississippi from doing that, and then leaves it to the lower courts to start upholding the even more extreme restrictions, including the outright bans.
7: So it opens the door for a continued assault by these more extreme laws.
8: Exactly. Because once you've overturned the viability rule, it's not clear that there's any bright line standard, that there's any point in pregnancy where courts can say, okay, before this point, abortion must be legal. After this point, it can be criminalized. That line has been viability for so long, and once it goes away, then Trump judges, especially in the lower courts, who have been so eager to uphold abortion bans, will finally have what they need. They will have this ruling from the Supreme Court that will allow them to uphold even more extreme bans. And they'll say, well, viability is not the rule anymore. Sure, the Supreme Court only upheld a 15-week ban, but its reasoning clearly applies to a six-week ban or a total ban or whatever.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Ordinary Equality in two parts, discussing how to be more effective and persuasive in our framing of our messaging on abortion rights. Democracy Now! focused on much of the political strategy for defending abortion rights with an eye on the Supreme Court from the Casey decision of the 90s up to today. What's Next highlighted the inevitable shift to criminalizing women, as is regularly done in abortion restrictive countries. Counterspin discussed the economics of the right to choice over one's own reproduction. In a third clip, ordinary equality shined light on the particular needs of trans and non-binary people seeking abortion services, and What's Next gave more detail about the ruling that is likely to be coming down from the Supreme Court. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Boom Lawyered, who got deep in the weeds on some of the most creative state-level abortion restriction strategies in the works. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you.
13: Hey Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling about 1427 about racism, specifically the, the last bonus clip where they talk about doctors and matching the race of doctors to patients. I think that that's a very real effect. I think it's ideally great, but I think in most places I know that we as a community health center do try to hire based upon the matching demographics of the community that we serve but it's not equal with doctors that that we just don't have that it's not available and although that's probably a good solution you know part of the question i would have in looking at that study when a black doctor was treating a black patient did they spend more time with the patient than the white doctor did with the black patient i know that the providers in our offices are very pressed for time to be able to see patients meet their productivity and document their visit. And it would just be interesting to see, you know, are they making more time out of their own will and, and so forth? Or uh, were they allotted more time? Would a of more time to connect with patients and be more interactive with patients um, improve this overall? You know, better healthcare care outcomes overall. Anyhow, regardless, I'm planning on sharing this clip with both the president, CEO and the medical director, because I think it's important information to share. So thank you very much. Keep wearing your mask and stay awesome.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at Bestofleft.com. To add just a little bit more self-promotion in today's show, in addition to, as I've been describing recently, my urging that you consider turning on notifications for when Best of the Left publishes new episodes, also this is the time of year when the Podcast Awards nomination process is in full swing. So you go to podcastawards.com and sign up, go through the process, it's all very simple, You don't need it explained to you. And then you nominate Best of the Left in the news and politics category. That's all you have to do. You just have to do it once. And I just need lots of people to do it to make sure that we get on the final slate to be considered for the award. So again, head to podcastawards.com, nominate us in news and politics, and it will be greatly appreciated. That is it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202 999 3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co hosting. And thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support or from right inside the Apple Podcast app if you like that sort of thing. Being a member is the only way you get instant access to our impressively good bonus episodes, as well as extra clips and no ads in all of our regular episodes. Now, for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Mm bestofleft.com.